You are listening to Confessions of a High School Bible Teacher. Hey everybody, this is Christopher Seals, and you are listening to Confessions of a High School Bible Teacher. Today, we have two special guests. One of them is a veteran. This is his third time with us, and we also have a noob with us. Our veteran is none other than the one and only Dr. Nate. Hello, friends. Doctor. <laughs> yes. I, I, as I was saying one and only Dr. Nate, I realized that there's probably another Dr. Nate somewhere. Somewhere. Meh. Meh, but probably not that important. Um, and if you recognize that other voice, that Hi. female voice, um, sometimes you might hear her saying, you are hmm. listening to Confessions of a High School Bible Teacher. Um, that, I that's didn't me. know that. I'm famous. Yeah, wow. She's basically <laughs> famous. Um, it is my wife. Hi. Katie Seals. Hi, Katie. Hey. Hi. Um, and so today I have these two people in here in particular. Um, Wayne is in the middle of a move, um, and so he's actually not going to be with us today. But these two people in particular, because of Dr. Nate has um, his professional experience as a psychologist, and Katie um, has worked with mentorship programs pretty extensively at our school. She even had a title for a while, the coordinator of discipleship. Um, and so both of them have worked with students um, and young people in, in a specific capacity. And today we're going to be talking about a very, I guess, heavy and serious subject. Um, we're going to be getting into the subject of self-harm. Um, and even before we get too far into this thing, um, we want you to know that, yes, we are going to be dealing with heavier topics, um, and some of these things may resonate with you um, or resonate with someone that you know, but by no means are we claiming to, um, is this going to be, you listen to a podcast and got a diagnosis, or you listen to a podcast and this is therapy or treatment for you. If any of this is resonating for you, um, then even though Dr. Nate is a professional and Katie has experience and I'm a teacher, um, we would encourage you to, to seek out professional help um, or encourage your friend or loved one to seek out professional help if they are indeed struggling with some of these things that we talk about today. So we kind of skipped the cheesy intro because I, I feel like <laughs> cheesy intro to a self-harm episode is probably not right. But um, let's start... Let, Dr. Nate, could you give us sort of the, the technical, what, what is self-harm? I think um, I've heard like people say, just refer to cutting, um, but then like the broader umbrella of self-harm. Can you kind yeah. of give us a, a little picture of what that's all about? Yeah, I think cutting is the most common, uh, what we used to refer to self-harm and self-injury. Um, in the mental health community the most recent term is non-suicidal self-injury and the way that's distinct is what's the anticipation or expectation of the act um, if there's a anticipation or expectation of of death of of suicide of completing suicide then that's considered a suicidal behavior something separate from self-harm and we'll get into a little bit more the relationship between those two phenomena, but self-harm involves some sort of injury, either using an instrument or, or um, fingernails or, or something of the sort to inflict harm, whether that's bleeding, uh, excessive um, rubbing and friction to the skin, um, there's a sidebar might be things like excoriation, picking at scabs, trichotillomania, pulling out hair. Um, kind of falls within the category of self-harm as well. Mm -hmm. But basically what we're looking at is something that typically is done for uh, emotional relief. Mm -hmm. And maybe we'll unpack that mm -hmm. some more as we go. There's different intention behind self-injurious behavior. Okay. So we have, I mean dealing with all different types of teenagers there's self-harm it seems like is distinct from other so sorts of self-injury in that there's intention there right i mean that intention has to do with relief you said that's the most widely accepted explanation in the okay. mental health community i would say i think 
maybe not the most common um, outside of the mental health community. And I guess I'm referring to people like therapists and counselors when I say the mental health community. Um, I think a lot of the common belief is, well, it's done for attention. Mm. And I'm really interested to hear your experience as people not formally within, you know, the mental health community, because that's, that can be a real sticking point between Mm -hmm. counselors and therapists and people who don't come at this behavior from the same vantage point. We we have uh, one of our friends was like a, a, even when you said excoriation, is that, that's a word. Um, Mm -hmm. You probably know the friend that I'm thinking of, but is an avid scab picker. Um, like we would be hanging oh, out, <laughs> we'd be hanging out and then there'd just be blood that would be out. And, but it didn't seem like, I feel like when I think of self-harm, I think of the emo kid, right. That, um, has like, I, or I guess that scene is what I associate with self-harm, not like the jock who like makes himself bleed. But then I, I also think of, I remember being in the weight room one time and there was this guy who had like scars down his arm from, um, putting out cigar butts. Hmm. Um, on his arm to show how manly he was but i guess then again it gets beneath the surface of okay well what hmm. what is the intention behind this stuff yeah yeah when you want to look at intention you have to also look at context hmm. and that's a tricky business um the common error that we make is to attribute personal flaws and characterological flaws to others behaviors and explain our own via the environment and the context. So that's a counterbalance that we have to maintain when we're talking about and looking at the context for self-injury is, well, what behaviors have been going on around this person, maybe in the family environment? Mm -hmm. Not just what do we think they're doing this for? So not over-intributing to the person, but also not removing the personal factor and the responsibility factor either. Got it. And so even thinking of context, like for me personally, um, there are certain students that I appeal to, but maybe because I process and talk and think in the cognitive realm a lot, um, I'm not usually the first person that people go to um, when they are struggling with self-harm, which is why I brought, I I have Katie in here Mm -hmm. because I know that you've had a lot of students who have come to you that that's something that they've struggled with in the past. Um, And so kind of just jumping off what Nate was saying, what, like speaking of context and some Mm -hmm. just anecdotally, what are some things that you you see like as common factors or things that surface um, a Mm -hmm. lot that kind of contribute to, I guess, high schoolers engaging in that behavior? Mm -hmm. A lot of the time I saw um, a lot of relational distress within the home. Um, And so like, as as you were saying, Dr. Nate, about, you know, it being more of like relief, I've been told that it was for that reason. Um, Like, oh, I just, I don't feel and I want to feel something. Um, But I've also seen it used to get the attention of the family members. Um, Like, you know, you know, if it's the emo kid, it's really like, oh, okay, so I'm just emotional or I'm just depressed. Well, let me show you how depressed I am. Um, So sometimes it's almost like a proving or like a crying out. yeah, so the, I feel like those are the, some of the main things that I've seen. A lot of it, though, um, it kind of, you know, when we sat and talked about, like, what goes through your mind when, when you know, before you do this or what happens, sometimes there's, like, a blacking out um, that I've been told, you know, oh, I blacked out. I don't really remember exactly everything, which, you know, again, I don't know how um, true all of those things were in the mm-hmm. moment, um, but it just seemed like um, a lot of the thoughts were um, – like painful things that they were thinking about Mm -hmm. having to do with, you know, past or, um, family stuff or, um, being hurt by someone. Um, so a lot of that. Yeah. I think, I think of like the, I guess the phrase, a cry for help, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, we, we, I feel like it's thrown around a lot, especially when working (laughs) with youth, but I think that sometimes we don't know how to ask for help when we are in our adolescent years and our prefrontal cortex is, not saying let's do logical things. Um, yeah. but we say, okay, if I need, if I'm, and I feel like attention just seems so shallow, but yeah, like the, right. like I need someone to see me, like I yeah. need someone to see where I am and how I'm hurting or what's going on inside of me. And so 
I'm going to externalize it with this sort of cry for help type right. behavior. Yeah, like like the the phrase, you just want attention. Yeah, um, yeah you're right. I, I want you to see what's going on inside of me. I'm, I'm not able to say it, so I'm going to show you. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I do want your attention. Yeah, and how many of us, like, honestly, like, a lot of us as humans, yes, we want attention. Like, we want to be seen by other humans, and we want to be known and recognized. And if, I mean, if it's a kind of a jerk thing to say, you just want attention, but it's also resonates as true for, I think, most of us that, yeah, we do want attention. We want someone to see us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious about the um, the gender um, prevalence. Like, how many guys, how many girls did it tend to be? Any trends that you noticed in people who came to you? Um, I mean, since, you know, in the Christian community, it's kind of like, don't have really super intimate conversations with people of the opposite sex, that whole thing. So it was mostly females that came to me. Um, mm-hmm. And there were a lot of them that had this behavior. Um, but a lot of the, like, common things I saw in their history was um, some sort of abuse. Okay. And almost, let me think, I think in all of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so then, I mean, if we're following the sort of same narrative that there's this sort of like internalized pain yeah um and then i think part of the thing that might be hard for a lot of our listeners who don't struggle with this to understand is like the relief piece yeah like how how does this like produce relief i feel like it it makes the the attention or the cry for help makes sense but the Mm -hmm. relief piece i think is the part that maybe a a lot of people might not quite get so what's going on in there that provides a sense of relief yeah, there's an endorphin rush. Um, as far as a buildup of stress is usually what my clients would explain to me is going on. Some sort of buildup of stress, um, whether it's anger, whether it's just pressure or you know academic pressure or what have you. Um, the focus is not really on the pain. And I think that's odd for someone to hear who's not familiar with the behavior like why would you do that 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 hurts doesn't it you know and then you know if you cut yourself you're gonna bleed you're Mm -hmm. going to have like a scab there or it's you know it's gonna burn when you get in the shower and and, you know and yes some of those reminders after the fact can actually trigger Mm -hmm. further depressive Mm -hmm. um thoughts and, Mm -hmm. and everything so but in that particular moment what was typically described to me was no it's just it's such a relief you know, just honestly, the the visual and the tactile um, reality of the experience. Back to what you said, Katie, about uh, people reporting numbness. Mm-hmm. You know, numbness and not being able to feel that sense of apathy or disconnection. Some people would actually describe cutting as if it was a form of grounding, which, mm-hmm. you know, Obviously, yes, mm-hmm. we're going to argue for better forms of grounding, not right. non-injurious forms of grounding, but <laughs> nonetheless, told, like, let's... It makes me feel real. It makes mm-hmm. me feel alive, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that's one window into the internal world of a person who does some form of self-harm is there is then this process, a physiological process of your body rushing to repair itself and to bring your attention right to that present moment. And it also kind of gets your mind off of the stress or off of the anger. It's not a resolution, but it feels like a break from the buildup of that emotion. Is there any way you could like liken it to something that might be more of a, I don't know, more accepted or common thing that people do in those moments? Um, you know, there probably is. I'm thinking along the lines of after you get a great workout or something, right, you have an endorphin rush or like a runner's high. Um, a lot of people say, you know, I never regret going to the gym. I never regret afterwards going for a run right. or something like that. Uh, other people will say, why do you do that? Like, it's just, why do you, why do you go, you know, hiking? You're just gonna, you know, get sore and get tired or, you know, why do you, punish yourself in in the gym or make yourself run 15 miles all of that and yeah there may be an an excessive dimension to that but 
nonetheless, there is an endorphin rush. There's a high that kind of comes with it. And that's, that's why you can also, it, it can become a very addictive behavior. Self-harm can mm-hmm. be, it can be right. very, very addictive. And I think that's another thing that um, often goes without saying is this can be a very addictive cycle. Mm-hmm. I think of um, Katie mostly working with girls and me mostly like connecting with, with guys, um, but still with self-harm, it doesn't seem to come up in the same context. Um, but even, even a little bit we were talking about sports and one of the most common behaviors that i see um it it maybe doesn't look like self-harm because it's very externalized at it at an object i remember one time in basketball i was really disappointed at my performance and i punched a wall and i sprained my wrist um and it's it seems more like aggression than self-harm right because it's like okay well i'm i'm aggressing against the wall and i'm not like trying to hurt myself but but part of me does wonder like to what extent does some of that like could some of that be lumped into the same category of like disappointment with yourself like whether it's in track and you didn't run fast enough and you do whatever to yourself yeah self-punishment yeah yeah some form of like oh i I, i'm gonna aggress against myself because it's inappropriate for me to punch that guy in the face um and so then i'll direct it to the wall or um i don't know the ground or whatever it is i've seen Mm -hmm. like people punch the ground because they're so like upset but it all it does is mess up their knuckles yeah 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 Yeah. and underneath all of that once again is emotion regulation um we do all kinds of displacement when we're trying to regulate our emotions and by displacement it's well i have nothing else that i know to do with this energy or with this anger and I don't feel like I can just wait for it to subside. It doesn't feel, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelmed my coping abilities or something. So I now feel that I have to do something to kind of inject a different feeling. Hmm. Um, so you immediately became aware of the pain in your wrist. Right. And all of a sudden we're not thinking so much about your performance. You're right. like, wow, will I be able to do this again <laughs> yeah. in the next six weeks if I broke my wrist, yes. you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. So there's a distraction factor to it as well sometimes. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the, when we were preparing for this, I, this is the nerdy Bible teacher thing um, in me, but um, in 1 Kings chapter 18, there's this famous scene where Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal um, to this, like, my God's better than your God, whose is bigger type thing. Um, and for those of you who know the story, um, he Elijah says, okay, you guys go first and, and cry out to Baal to see if he sends down fire from heaven. Um, and then, spoiler, at the end, Elijah, <laughs> like nothing happens and Elijah cries out to God. But there's this interesting chunk right before it switches sides and Elijah gets a turn to ask Yahweh for fire from heaven. Um, the prophets of Baal, they're not getting an answer. Elijah kind of says, well, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe you need to cry louder. Um, and in in that, after that, that jarring or that jab, the prophets of Baal begin to cut themselves um, mm. until they bleed. Like the text is explicit, it says, and they began to cut themselves until they bleed, as was their custom of worship. Um, but it, I find it interesting that it was after they were unheard, right? They were unheard and unresponded to by their God. Like that was their extreme. Yeah. Like, that, that they then said, okay, if you're not listening, mm-hmm. if you're not up there. Yeah. I'll cut myself. Yeah, like, if, let's get some response here. Bale rolled Jeez. his eyes and said, you're just doing this for attention. I think. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, I, I think like, I don't want to like isogete and put something in the text that's not there. But if, if that is a historical event that actually happened, I, and humans are wired very similarly to how they are today, then it would make sense that yes, this is a, Hey, I, I need to be heard. And that whether it's frustration or anger or sadness that or shame that they're experiencing because Baal isn't responding, their natural escalation was okay, self harm. Yeah, and that ties into a fear I think a lot of people have is oh, I don't want to bring this up because if I bring it up, they're gonna do it or start mm-hmm. doing it or do it more. And I, I really want to dispel that. Yeah. Um, same thing with um, suicidal thoughts, behaviors. There, there really isn't any support for the notion that you're somehow putting this idea in somebody's head Mm. um given the mass media of 
every you know suicide that we encounter in our society and also um adolescence exposure to self-harm uh via social media and everything Mm -hmm. those ideas and it's already there Mm -hmm. um so don't use your own i guess this is probably as prescriptive as i'll I'll be in (laughs) the podcast but um don't absolve your own discomfort Mm -hmm. in asking by saying oh i just don't want to put that idea in their head um if you can't approach it for your own reasons have someone else do it um but really it's it's not going to put the idea in their head yeah and i think that even i i think that what it does is it robs it of its mystery by bringing it out into the open i I think like lately i've been hearing some of these statistics even it was on like talk radio the other day um talking about statistics of um generation z or the digitals or whatever we call this new generation coming up um, having sex less. Um, and it, what's funny is that like in the sermons I hear, there's a lot of like complaint about, okay, we're talking about sex too much. There's sex everywhere, but like people are having less sex. Um, and so it, it kind of reaffirms this, like just because it's talked about more, doesn't mean that people are going to engage in that behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. And so just by making it public, like, yeah, cutting is a thing. Even thinking one of the biggest things that students asked for this last year um, as far as chapel um, speakers, was, hey, we need to talk about depression, suicide, and self-harm right. more because we never talk about it, and we know people in our school that are doing it, but no one's talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we need to, like, dispel the, I, I guess, the that myth that you're speaking of. Like, yeah. it needs to be brought into the light so that people can actually confront and deal with it. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully in a really constructive way. Um, And I guess, so just to get a couple of those factors, well, not factors, but figures out there. um, This is from a a 2017 article. Um, They actually cite um, a study from 2013 and 2002 as to how often this really happens, Mm -hmm. uh, non-suicidal self-injury. So it says that recent estimates as of that time suggested that as many as 38% of young adults had non-suicidal self-injury at some time in their lifetime. And then also that as many as 15 to 19% of students in their university years were engaging in some form of self-injurious behavior. Holy cow. So it's a lot. I yeah. mean, 38%, you know, we're getting very close to 50% there just to state the obvious, you know? Um, so don't assume it's not happening. Right. Um, and as far as what you're looking for, what signs you're looking for, I mean, um, there are people who hide their cuts and self-harm very well. There are people who display it very openly. There's a wide range of the individual's relationship to this behavior after and even during the behavior Mm -hmm. um you know sometimes on the on the upper legs or upper arms areas that are most typically covered Mm -hmm. um so you might you know have people refusing to wear shorts or you know just never wearing shorts um i'm sure you guys have have run into this with with high schoolers a lot or gloves even like like long gloves and it's like oh that person's a hipster Um, yeah but it's like oh no (laughs) covering you know and And it's, do you then tell that person not to cover their cuts? That's, you know, a lot more specific to each case than than I would care to be. Because once again, the person's relationship to it is going to vary widely. Yeah. Well, okay. So in both of those, so that study that cited those other studies, (laughs) like talked about college age, young adults. um, No, we're not like. I find that whenever this topic comes up, no one's talking about 80 year olds engaging in self harm, right? Like it's not the, the senior citizens. It's not Mm -hmm. the people in their middle age. Well, while I'm sure it does occur. Right. Um, but just stereotypically the, the cultural meme is this is a thing that teenagers and young adults do. Yeah. Um, so what's, what's going on in teenage and young adult life that makes it so that, okay, this is a thing for them right um, now I again it's beyond that I know but but why is it that it's in that demographic that it's so severe uh, 
I think it's that like when you're a teenager you feel like you're not really in control of everything and you feel like or they or anyone feels like the world is against them and all this pain is coming towards them so I feel like they want to control their pain and by harming themselves they feel like that that's the way to take out the pain and like feel it physically rather than mentally and emotionally. Um, I think it's one of two things, or maybe both of two things. The first one being trying to communicate some type of inner brokenness to other people because they think that what is tangible and seen or felt is more real than like what's inside. And so because of that, they try and reflect their inner brokenness on their physical body. And then the second one is that they are trying to take away from the pain that they feel within by distracting themselves with uh, pain on the outside. I think it has to do with the fact that they are put under a lot of pressure, at least a lot more pressure than they used to be, and that a lot of times it's not taught very well in school, or in anywhere really, how to deal with those things, and that media portrays it as something that they should be ashamed of. They talk to people, and then people don't respond or do anything, like they talk to people about their issues, and then like they don't know what nothing happened, so they still feel this pain, so I feel like they do it out of like attention, not because they want like attention from everyone, just attention from someone to help them because they don't know how to help themselves. Katie, what do you think on, on this one from your, I wanna I mean, kind of- First things that were coming to my mind was like, well, um, their context, like they're okay. in the home, if, if you know what the situations, the many situations that I saw, um, the issue was, you know, having the attention or whatever you want to call it in the home, um, <clears throat> a cry for help in the home, you know, it's someone who's young and they are dependent on someone else. And so, um, I, I, I'm just thinking like an adult, it's more, you know, you're, if it's not going to be as prevalent, like you're in charge of yourself, essentially mm-hmm. you like, Maybe there's other behaviors that come out at that point. I'm not sure, but I know that, um, or just from what I'm imagining, it's this kid who's in the home. They, you know, they're trying to cry out to someone else um, who is supposed to be their, you know, caregiver, their primary caregiver, and um, someone else is responsible for them, and that's their way of like getting their attention. Right. Whereas an adult, yeah, go ahead. if you're trying to get someone's attention, right, like um, through harming yourself, like so, if just for that motive in particular, right. then it has to right. be someone who cares about you. Otherwise, it's going to be like, oh, look at that guy hurting himself. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Right. Um, but if but for the teenagers, yeah, I guess it makes sense. Like, provided that they're still like in the home, that that does. I mean, it does kind of effectively communicate that something's going on, provided that the parent notices. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, so I, I think that yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and there's more options open to adults as far as how they self-regulate. Mm. Um, or self-medicate and that's exactly, <laughs> exactly. right yeah um you know yeah. do you engage in some form of self-harm do you engage in some form of self-numbing exactly. you know there's there's a real parallel there and so in some sense the options are more limited for adolescents mm-hmm. um and they find other options right. um, that seem effective. And, and, and I would say too, yes, brain development, uh, right. self-control, <laughs> like just the hardware that does self-control is not online for adolescents. Right. It's just <laughs> not there. <laughs> yeah. um, now you will say, well, I know, I know kids that are very self-controlled and yes, there's okay. wide range of individual variety in this, mm-hmm. but that's that's a reality. So the the hardware for self control is not completely developed yet, and teens are experimenting. They're learning how to manage themselves and their emotional states. I I sound like a broken record with the emotion regulation thing, but it right. really is mm-hmm. um, a, a pretty well established theory on what contributes to to self harm. Right, and I I'm even thinking um, when uh, when I was in I think it was junior high. Um, a junior high aged, I remember having lots of strong emotions, um, involving like people, like other people that I was into or like, um, this girl that I was attracted to. And I remember like, because it's me, I can discount my own feelings. Um, but I remember like looking back, like I remember in doing cutting, not like I wasn't like hardcore or whatever, uh, I don't, whatever that means, <laughs> but I remember doing that behavior like explicitly 
for recognition, um, for attention, but it was for attention because there was so much emotion in me and I didn't know what to do with it as a junior high kid. Right. And I was like, well, this is a thing that some people do. So Mm -hmm. let's like, let's try it. It was, it was very like, like you're saying the experimental, like, I don't know what this is going to like, let's give it a shot. See what happens. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And I think like the, the distinct from suicidality, like it wasn't like I was suicidal at all. It was just, I had strong feelings for this girl. And so, Hey, this is a thing. Like, let's do it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, antecedents, right? Things that lead up to Mm -hmm. a behavior or event. And then there's the behavior itself. And then there's consequences, the things after. And, I think often what gets left out is what are the consequences to the individual after there's a lot of shame and guilt mm-hmm. um, uh, that follows, you know, people are re-triggered by seeing their own scars and scabs and cuts. Mm. And that's not often mentioned either. Yeah. And and so there's these, these different triggers that, that cause these cycles. So how, I, I guess uh, maybe we're jumping the gun here, but so what does a person do? Like, like say I notice a student and I'm like, those are new scars and they look, I don't know. Fresh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They look calculated. Yeah. Um, They don't look like they fell out of a tree or whatever. Um, Right. So, so then where do I, where do I go with that? Cause Mm -hmm. it could even be that I'm like, Hey, are you, if I just say, Hey, are you cutting yourself? (laughs) Like that could like shame them into wanting to cut themselves more or like what, what do we do? And I, maybe let's start just in general. Like when you see someone who is engaging in that and you have rapport. So if it's a peer yeah. or anyone, what do you do? And then maybe we can get a little bit more professional and say, what do we do as mentors, as adults? In okay. Lives? Yeah. So like in general, say I've got a friend and I'm like, ooh, those look fresh. Yeah. Yeah. And even um, there's a your own reaction to it, right? It's right. a little oh, startling yeah. at first. Um, and I think that's a good thing to notice is just that it is jarring to see someone who is harmed or, right. and, and you think that they did that to themselves because right. our mind goes so yeah. many directions. What comes up to me is like that. a fear, like, oh no, I need to do something. You know, mm-hmm. if I see it, someone has to do something right. yeah. and then I get like that heart and my heart starts racing and yeah. And so it, it builds this like sense of urgency within us and, and even anxiety mm-hmm. that, is really just by itself kind of tough to manage, but that's the right urge, right? Is, you know, I want to help with that. Like that's, that's concerning to me. And I think that's a really great place to speak from. And as far as the context, trying to get a one-on-one type of conversation. I mean, um, Katie, I don't know. Like, it sounds like most of the time students were coming to you, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure there was also times you decided to follow up and, or even, wanted to like yeah. start the conversation. So I'd be curious like how you approach that. Cause my role it's, it's, you know, usually yeah. people come to me, uh, like after the, like a yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're referred or their right. parents make them or, yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Um, it's always tricky too, because I feel like, you know, getting into like the teacher part of it, um, you have to consider, okay, you want to have some confidentiality with the students so that they can trust you and then they can share things. But, but knowing that when they share things, some of those things might be things you have to talk to someone about, mm-hmm. um, which happened in m- most of, I mean, all of the cases. <laughs> I'm not saying there's like a case out there that I didn't tell someone, but um, I, I think maybe just my personality or, or whatever it might be, but I tend to um, just kind of say things. <laughs> um, and I think because it was so concerning to me and I got really used to what those types of cuts look like, um, I felt like I could notice it kind of right away. And so, um, I would, you know, wait for like a one-on-one setting or if I see it as I'm passing out papers or something, I would, um, you know, make sure I catch them on their way out of class or, um, like go look for them at lunch or something and just be like, Hey, I I noticed this. Like I would just say it because I think one of my things is like, as long as we aren't saying something or, or keeping it hush hush or like making it mysterious or whatever, I feel like it's, um, I don't know, like bringing out into light lose makes it lose some of its power I think maybe I'm totally wrong but for me that's I feel like that's the way things work and so um I would try to be gentle about it depending on the student you know if there's a student where it's been a conversation for years then I'd be like dude hey (laughs) what's going on there um but yeah I would bring it bring it up like hey I I noticed this um are you you doing okay do you want to talk about something or 
you know, when, when it would come up, I'd have to ask, like, do your, does your family know what this? Do your parents know? Um, and I mean, I, again, I had to report several cases. So, um, but my tendency is always just to bring it up, to point it out, to, hey, I notice you. I, here's attention. Like, I see you. I see you. And not because I think you're just an attention sucker, but like, um, there's clearly something going on that needs to be addressed that's underneath this. This is just like the behavior, like what's going, what has gone on that brought you to this. Right. And something that I think Katie's really good at that I like struggle with that I need to get better at is the follow-up question because oftentimes there'll be the, Hey, are you doing okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Um, and like yeah. my <laughs> gut like instinct is to be like, okay, they uh, said they're fine. Okay. <laughs> it's good enough for me. Like I did, I did what I was supposed to. Yeah. I at least asked them, okay, I'm done. But Katie will be like, okay, that's weird because you're acting different. Um, mm-hmm. or, Oh really? Cause like, I saw this or, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, cause you're bleeding right there. <laughs> yeah. But, but I think that like the, that is a huge part is saying, I notice you. Yeah. And even when they try to do the push away behavior to still power through and say, but mm-hmm. I'm still noticing you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that's something that I can grow in. Um, but I think some people are just wired really well for, I think you're wired really well Mm -hmm. for that to be able to say, okay, I can, I can push through the BS and be Mm -hmm. like, okay, um, well then what did happen? Right. Whereas I would just be like, Oh, so you fell. Okay. You know what I mean? And then if I hear that, Oh, I fell or I did, I I do push like, Oh really? Where? Like, when did that happen? Oh, who was someone there? Oh, so like I go and then I, I, then they're finally like, Okay, it wasn't bad because <laughs> I can't make up any more lies because right. I'm quick. Yeah, but but I think that part of part of the I guess part of the the tact there is to be sincere in the asking, right? Like that it's not just like a, I know something you don't know. Right. I'm coming down on you as the authority, totally, but like yeah. I notice you. Yeah. And I'm going to continue to ask until I see you fully. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, I care about you. Important. Yeah. 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 Moving into. What do you do? So first thing definitely is to ask, you know, to manage your own um, Mm -hmm. revulsion or your own internal reaction to noticing the the behavior and notice it and and ask in a non-judging way that's just kind of seeking information and expressing some form of support, Um, obviously knowing that you have your own right to seek support with how to handle that information. one thing that you know, I wanted to make sure we touch on is the effects of uh, friends who hold these secrets for yeah. their friends. Jeez. And that's a really tough one. I mean, it's uh, from a professional's perspective, it's tough because, you know, Katie, like you were talking about with confidentiality, trust and self-harm, you know, danger to self, danger to others. All of these right. different things are very complicated and you know, without unpacking that in enormous detail, it's a lot for a person to hold and to handle. And I know the the person who discloses it often feels guilty, mm-hmm. like I'm burdening you yep. with this. And there is a reality to that. Right. There's also a reality to needing it to be named and right. to be supported. So there's a lot of tension here. And it, it's just really hard to to break up a cycle mm-hmm. of um, an addictive behavior, mm-hmm. really. And I think if we if those numbers that you're saying are representative of the youth population, then it's not even just going to be those who see it and are revulsed, but it could even be those who see it and are triggered or who see mm-hmm. it and they have their own experience, so mm-hmm. that they're like, I did that and I see it, and um, and then I think knowing our own baggage knowing our own experience and bringing like being aware of it as we confront i think is really important because otherwise we can say this was my journey it needs to be yours too right or in trying to help the other person you're really just trying to save yourself Mm -hmm. or um you're trying to get them to have their problem fixed so that you don't have to confront your own stuff and so uh, whether you're like triggered or revulsed like uh, revolted repulsed i changed that anyway um (laughs) either of those reactions i think it's important to like know our own baggage that we're bringing to the conversation and letting the other person like shine through and be heard and be seen and supported yeah yeah i would really strongly encourage adolescents who are carrying these secrets uh with their friends and for their friends to consider not doing that um and and really to consider it um so what do you do with it do you tell their parents well you know 
a lot of times parents are viewed or or in reality are part of what yeah. is yeah. in the context yeah. leading to the unmanageable emotions um but find someone you can tell um and and preferably someone who has more knowledge and expertise that they can bring into the situation like a mentor mm -hmm. like a teacher like a counselor because um, this is a lot to carry i right. i know of many situations where it's heavier than mm -hmm. suicidal mm -hmm. gestures where there's threats made mm -hmm. um and and even attempts made and people are carrying these stories and and just to tremendous damage to themselves and i, I would really encourage adolescents in in that position to seek support for themselves mm -hmm. I've had a lot of like friends, you know, come to me and be like, well, I don't want to tell you who, but this is going, what should I do? And that's their way. I, I've noticed like, that's their way of saying, can you take this from me? Cause this is too heavy. Like, I, I don't know what to do with it. And yeah. I want to say almost thankfully, um, you know, as teachers we're under like a contract, you know, if, if someone, what, what is the, uh, the verbiage like it's danger to themselves or others, right? We like are you are reporters. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I feel like, that saved me a lot of the time because otherwise, yeah, it is really hard to carry that. It is really hard to say, like, I want to keep your trust. And I want you to be able to tell me because I think you should be telling somebody. Um, but then, but I want you to get better. Like I want there to be help. I want not just the behavior to stop, but I want to know why yeah. you're doing that behavior and let's get some help there too. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is hard because a lot of times, you know, if, like I said, there is abuse or if there's something going on at home, um, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking if this parent finds out, it's going to, it's probably going to look like this and that might not be good either, but, um, maybe they can get help with what's going on. Um, so I'm, I was kind of thankful to have that, like to fall back on like, well, I'm mandated reporter. So sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, sorry, not sorry. Um, but for friends who aren't under like a contract necessarily, right. that's really hard because they want to keep the trust. Um, and they want, they care about their friend and, you know, sw swear you won't tell anyone, promise me you won't tell my parents. Well, what the heck am I supposed to do? Like you're, yeah, you're in danger. And, mm -hmm. um, so yes, friends tell someone, tell someone who has to do something about it. Right. Let's say that. Yeah. And then they can help you carry it. I don't know. And f for those of us who do have to do something about it, like, do you have any suggested best practices? Mm -hmm. Cause I know that like I, especially if I'm part of like some larger institutional machinery, I'll just like say, okay, who do I report to? Right. Find person X. Yeah. But, um, I know that following machinery is not always like what's best and most healthy. Yeah. Um, so what does it look like to like, make sure you're still following the law. Um, right. but then also doing what's best to, to be helpful yeah. in the situation. Yeah. The first thing is to make sure you clearly understand the law, follow the law first. <laughs> yes. Um, and if you have any questions about that, get it clarified. Right. Um, and then you also have your ethics. So, you know, law and ethics, um, what is expected of you in your given role and also what's not expected of you. Mm -hmm. Um, I would also say, know your resources. Um, where can I go with this? And that can also help the conversation along as opposed to, you don't really know where to point this student or, or mm. person or friend. Uh, know what your resources are and make sure that adolescents know what their resources right. are. Um, yeah, as so those of you who are mentors, teachers, youth pastors, whatever, if when we're saying this stuff, you think, wait, who am I supposed to tell? Or what are, do we have any resources? Figure it out. Um, <laughs> now is a really good time because you don't want to be asking those questions when you get the text from the yeah. student or you see the cuts right. or you're in that crisis. You don't want to at that moment then be thinking, oh, shoot, where are their resources? Right. Who do I tell? Yeah. Um, it's better to know that in advance. Yeah, and, and so getting that clear also communicate that clarity to the person who's disclosing. Uh -huh. Um, yeah. and then, so in the psychotherapy world, you might call that a frame. What's the frame? What are the rules and boundaries of this relationship? Mm -hmm. Um, that's important. Um, that is the hard part when you know, someone wants to tell you something, but they don't want you to do what you have to do. Yeah. And there, I, there's no way around that conflict. It's a conflict. And mm -hmm. 
there may be a way above the conflict to reflect on it with the person and talk them through some of the long-term um, expectations they could have. So let, let me give a little bit of an example. So um, when I would receive someone in, in my office who was referred to me because they had been cutting, um, we have a very detailed conversation about what their parents are going to know and what they're not going to know. Mm-hmm. And I can't give hard and fast you know, answers on all of that because where is that line of danger to self? You know, yeah. We're talking about non-suicidal self-injury. Mm-hmm. Are, are you sure you know where all your veins and arteries are? You don't yeah. know. Yeah. Where is that line? I'm not a medical professional. Right. You know, I don't know exactly you know, what if you, you know, cut too deep. You know, yeah. All of these yeah. things have to be factored in. What's, what type of self-harm are you doing? With what intensity are you doing? There's a lot of judgment calls. And, and if there are professionals listening to this, I'd, I'd say get some consultation always when you're, when you're not sure on this. Um, and, and even if you're in a mentoring role, get some consultation from someone who is a professional and get clear how to communicate that frame. Right. And, and what's, the, what's the relationship there? Because, I mean, we've kind of been focusing on non-suicidal self-injury. Yeah. Um, but, like, the fact that they have to make that specification and we don't know where the veins and arteries are maybe sometimes. Um, yeah. Are those two things linked? Are, are, do they uh, interact with each other? Because... Th- I mean, suicide is self-injury to the fatal extent, but like, what's are they related to each other? Do they interact with each other? What's what are the links between those two things? They're definitely linked and also distinct. So linked in that many people who attempt suicide have also done self-harm. Hmm. High correlation between. Um, if you look at, okay, is someone likely to attempt suicide with never having done self-harm? That's more rare. Mm. It's kind of another way to say it. So they're linked. Um, You have to be careful to say not everyone who self-harms is suicidal. Mm. That's important. So they're, they're linked, but they're also distinct. So the distinct side of it is that what's the intention or the expectation behind the behavior? Right. When you did the self-injurious behavior, what did you think was going to happen? Right. And, and that's an important question mm-hmm. to, to address. Yeah. Um, if we want to be a little more technical about it, this is from uh, the DSM-5, came out in 2013, and at that point, and, and so still, there's not a diagnosis for non-suicidal self-injury. Hmm. It's considered a, you know, a condition for further study. Uh, you can also include some coding of that in your diagnosis, but one one note that is made is that the absence of suicidal intent has either been stated by the individual or can be inferred by the individual's repeated engagement in a behavior that the individual knows or has learned is not likely to result in death. That's in the proposed criteria for kind of for further study. Got it. So the wording there is is pretty stilted yeah. and technical yeah. as usual, <laughs> but um. So it's technically not a diagnosable condition. It's not a, by itself. Got it. So it's yeah. a behavior that, like, if someone maybe is depressed, you can like say, and they also engage in this behavior. It's like a yeah. like a kicker, like a, a could be a thing. could be a criteria that contributes to a diagnosis. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and in this description of proposed criteria so real quick on on conditions for further study in the dsm there's been research done on on these proposed areas it's just still in the process okay do we have a clear grouping of behaviors that warrants a diagnosis that's that's kind of how they come up with it um one one thing they they list is that it has to be one or more of the following as far as the expectation. One is to obtain relief from a negative feeling or cognitive state. 
two is to resolve an interpersonal difficulty, and three is to induce a positive feeling state, hmm. which I think refers yeah. back to a lot of what we've been right. alluding to as far as what's behind this. Right. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Okay, so not only are we mentors and teachers, um, but oftentimes um, a lot of our listeners are mentors and teachers either within the Christian school context or within the Christian religious or a church context. Um, and what I think is really important to point out is that just because you are a follower of Jesus or if you go to a Christian school or if you're part of a religious structure does not make you immune to self-harm. Um, it does not make you immune to wanting to resolve personal issues. It doesn't make you immune to wanting to experience relief from internal agony. You might feel um, more guilt about it after the fact. Exactly. That's which is what, probably worse. <laughs> right. And that's what I was thinking is like in, in these contexts, we there's also that a layer of, okay, make sure that you're all put together because if you're saved, then you like it, exactly. it should be evident in all of your behaviors and cutting yourself. Well, that's not mm -hmm. saved behavior. That's devil behavior. Mm -hmm. So uh, make sure that you get your crap together. Um, is there... I'm, we, we talked a little bit about this before, but like you only gave me the tip of the iceberg. Um, tell me a, a bit about this research that you were talking about earlier yeah. um, into like what like self harm. And then does Christianity help? Does like being at a Christian school, does, mm -hmm. should that mitigate those factors and make it less likely for people to want to engage in self harm? Mm -hmm. What's, what's that? Like what's the connection between Christian spirituality and, and self harm? So really interesting study I came across in, in preparing for our, our talk was a 2017 study with a really long title, um, <laughs> but it's, it's about the relationship between non-suicidal self-injury and religiosity and spirituality. So it's not specific mm -hmm. to Christianity, um, so we'll be careful not to overgeneralize oh, yeah. you know, what, what they found in this study. Um, the aim of the study was to try and see if doubt and questioning about one's faith had any relationship mm -hmm. to non-suicidal self-injury. So mm -hmm. in, in some respects, it, it pertains to your question. Others, it's like really specific. And, and so anytime you're doing a study, you got to trade off. Do you want it to be specific or do you want it to be generalizable? Right. So, you know, this this is just how it is with research. You have to give up something. Got it. Okay. So what they found was that doubt and questioning, and they had, you know, ways to measure this mm -hmm. doubt and questioning predicted increased non-suicidal self injury over time. Mm. Now, I don't know how detailed I want to be as far as <laughs> explaining like prediction and causation right. and all of those things, but Let's let's keep it as simple as we can. So higher doubt and questioning predicted increased non-suicidal self-injury over time. Right. Well, and you as the professional, you can't say this, but I, I'm going to go ahead and like try and connect dots as a non-professional. <laughs> Sounds um, good. Say, okay, if internalized agony that we don't know how to express or relational distress are triggers for people to engage in self-harm hmm. and you have thoughts um, or ideas that conflict with the belief structure of your community mm. um, or that cause enough cognitive dissonance that you have to rethink w everything that you believe about the universe if mm -hmm. those doubts are true, then it would make sense that there would be an incredible emotional buildup. And then if we throw on top of that the fact that you're a teenager um, and you have like the emotional regulation and the cognitive... Um, capacities being slightly limited in your decision-making centers, um, then it would totally make sense that, yeah, if you're doubting your framework for belief, then of course that's going to cause an increase in emotional distress. And if that can predict potential for self-harm, then yeah, that, that does make a lot of sense. Yeah. So as the non-professional, mm -hmm. I feel like I can, they might be connected guys. Hey. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> So connected and then also starting at the behavior, the non-suicidal self-injury, that can predict increased questioning and doubt. Mm. So mm. it's kind of, we would say, say again, we would say bi-directional. So um, non-suicidal self-injury may predict increases in questioning and doubt. 
So if you have questioning or doubt, you're more likely to self harm. If you self harm, you're, you're more, more likely, likely to to doubt. Jeez. Yeah. So the research in this area typically focuses on okay, does our our value system, our spirituality, our, our religious practices, does that protect us perhaps against emotional distress? And while they, they definitely didn't find any evidence that it causes the distress, mm-hmm. there, there was good support to say that the questioning and doubt, just like you were summarizing, Chris, ca- can cause its own distress that can precipitate mm-hmm. a need to self-regulate you know, right. via self-harm. Um, one thing they, they did not find, um, and, you know, don't overinterpret things that are not found. Um, but they said the hypothesis that general spirituality or religiosity would protect against suicide, non-suicidal self-injury that was not supported. Hmm. So they, they just didn't find any evidence in this particular study that spirituality and religiosity protected against that behavior got it yeah and so like that would make sense like why we still see this in christian schools because that isn't a mitigating factor in fact it might actually be something that hey we might be more likely um provided that doubt occurs which in previous episodes we've talked about doubt and questioning and those are all like that's part of the journey and i i would say that at least for christianity um i would say that if doubt creates that sort of um i guess that that much of a of a desperate feeling of being rejected or lost by the community then we've probably communicated the gospel poorly um and we've probably miscommunicated what the whole point of christ was right and i think that like even reading the letters of the early church so much of it was no there isn't anything that we can do like there isn't anything that we can do that can separate us from the love of God. Um, and so much of Paul's early writing was saying, okay, yeah, the law was really helpful to get us to Jesus. But now that we're at Jesus, th- like the law no longer can condemn you. Um, and so I think that for those of you who are like Christians and you hate yourself because you have doubt, or if maybe you're engaging in self-harm and you hate yourself more because of that, like know that there's nothing that you can do that can make God love you any less. There's nothing that you can do that um, would make condemnation rain down on it, on you. Um, there's no behaviors or deeds or sins or taboos that you can do or violate or create that would separate you from the love of God. And I think that if we actually understood that, then then maybe like some of those like those factors that increase likelihood would disappear because then the doubt wouldn't be stressful because it'd be like, I have doubt today. Crazy, right? That's part of the journey. Interesting. Like, let's talk about it instead of, um, I'm having doubt today. Oh no, I'm going to burn in hell for eternity. Um, because if you say that, then you you don't get Jesus, right? You don't get what he was all about. But I I feel like, I feel like that was very positive and I don't mean to throw something negative in there, but I just feel like, especially as a teenager, it's going to be really hard for that to matter. I know I shouldn't say that, but yeah, it's going to be hard for that to matter when you have the pressures of your parents mm. wanting you to be a certain type of kid. You have the pressures of your friends. You need to be a certain type of kid. You have the pressures of your teachers. Oh, look at that kid. That kid's, oh, I love that kid. That kid's the great one, you know? And, and so, um, it's, I feel like easier said than done, you know, it's, it's easier to say, okay, God loves me than to feel, um, like you're worth something when everyone around you is saying something totally different. Mm-hmm. So expressing those doubts, um, and being able to feel like yourself in your community um, is a lot more difficult when you know that, yeah, you might not be rejected by God, but everyone around you might express some sort of rejection because of their fear of the things you're saying probably yeah. or the things you're experiencing. Yeah, and it makes me – because Wayne isn't here, I'm going to channel him and say <laughs> channel his Channel your inner Wayne. Um, and um. Uh, Christianity is caught, not taught. Um, yeah. And yeah. he's constantly saying that. But, yeah, we can yeah. say the gospel is you can be accepted and loved no matter what. But then if we don't model acceptance and love no matter, no matter what, what, then they're going to be like BS. Like yeah. you, you, that's not true. How can God be like that if you're the one who's advocating for this and you don't even embody it? And so like, I think that is why it's so important for the Bible teachers, the youth pastors, the pastors, the mentors, the youth leaders, like the parents, the parents <laughs> to get this message. Because I, I find myself regularly to the high schoolers apologizing on behalf of educators because mm-hmm. we teach moralism. 
we teach if you are a good boy or girl, mm. then you are liked, then you are loved, then you're accepted. Um, and that's just the opposite of what the gospel is trying to communicate. And so, I mean, it's so hard and sticky in a situation where we have to give people letter grades for their performance to say mm. your performance is irrelevant, mm. right? And so everything that we can do in the way that we show love and the way that we accept and the way that we make eye contact and hear people out and support. listen and support without judgment is going to be much more effective than having someone fill in the blanks to what the gospel is mm -hmm. and what justification means and what salvation is and all of that. So, um, for those of you who are out there who, who know someone or you struggle yourself, um, I'm not in your life, so I can't like live it out for you and let you know that you're loved. Um, but if propositional truth means anything to you, you're loved and you're accepted. Um, I'd like to thank Dr. Nate and Katie for being here with us. you have any final closing words? Mm, real quick on ways out or ways through a little bit of like yeah. hope giving, hope oh expressing. Um, I mean, <laughs> and, and, and it's not, not exactly something that can be covered in a very detailed or yeah. regrettably not the most helpful way. But we've said a few times on here, you know, bringing it into the light. light yeah. Definitely that. Um, definitely not not hiding with this behavior um, or letting it keep you hidden. Um, making sure that you're seeking out safe support and and developing those emotional abilities, capabilities. Um, for recognizing the things that make you want to hurt yourself and backing up that causal chain and getting other behaviors in place of that because mm -hmm. the emotions are always going to be there. You're not going to yeah. escape emotions. You know, it's, it's just not a practical way out. You want to be able to live in the ups and downs and live through the highs and lows. And that's it's especially hard as adolescents. But if you have a community that can help you do that, if you have competent, emotionally competent others in your life that can help you do that and model that for you, that, that feelings do come and go yeah. and they are intense. And you do develop your ability just like when you're working out, you do develop your ability by handling the next challenge. And developing the strength internally and also in your community to be able to do that. So build that for yourself and, and also have patience, be able to look at this as, you know, a spectrum. You know, it's okay to do a little harm reduction if, if you're cutting, you know, just don't do the the worst part of it, right? You know, I've I've had patients who maybe they were cutting with, with some sort of instrument and they maybe snapped themselves with a rubber band to kind of yeah. step themselves down. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, this, this is part of the treatment for, for some of these behaviors. Obviously it's case by case, mm -hmm. but at its core, developing the ability to handle the emotions, to really ride those waves. They come and they go, but you have to learn how to kind of ride the waves and have people in the boat with you that can help mm -hmm. you do that. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Katie, any, any last piece of advice for how to like, walk with students or walk with people you love in this because I, I think being in the boat with others is something that a lot of us struggle with we yeah. say I'll be there for you um, and then we don't talk to them again so what does it look right. like to be in the boat with people and walk with people I think um, I've gone through um, just a wide variety of ways I have been in the boat um, sometimes I um was drowning and um, realized that wasn't healthy for me as well, um, or either. Um, sometimes I like went on the shore and was like, "All right, see ya, nice boat." Um, other times I, um, you know, had I was steering or whatever, like whatever kind of boat you have. Um, <laughs> but I think um, sometimes, like you were mentioning earlier, some of the stories or some some of the thoughts some of the emotions um, tapped into some of my own stuff. Mm. And I think kind of knowing, I feel like we say this all the time, like knowing where I end and someone else begins, like where my stuff is my stuff and their stuff is their stuff and not like take, taking it on with them, meaning like walking with them as they carry um, their stuff, but 
not carrying it for them because mm-hmm. I feel like um, for so many years I carried things for people, for students in particular, um, thinking I was doing the right thing. And I think once I was no longer there, because students graduate, they leave, they go off on their own, right? Um, once I was no longer there, no one was carrying it for them. And I saw some of the same behaviors just come right back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's tricky because um, every case is going to be different, but it's, it's, um, I don't know. I think of our, our daughter and I think of um, the, <laughs> even with the toddler, like the wide variety of emotions. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I think, you know, the tendency to be like, you know, when they're crying or they're super upset, like, you're okay, you're okay, suck it up. But then realizing, no, wait, you know, I, I have seen the future of this. Like, if I tell her, suck it up, don't cry, get over it. Um, then she becomes me. She, beca- <laughs> 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 she becomes you. Um, and I think, I don't know, I know that. They're, they're not necessarily toddlers, but I do think there's an aspect of like, okay, there's emotions there. Let's talk about the emotion. Let's, um, sometimes, you know, I don't, I feel like this is so tricky because, uh, you know, you want to give so much attention to the emotion and then maybe they stay there. Um, so it's, I feel like I'm just making everything super confused. Um, pay attention to the emotion, um, figure out why it's there, talk about it, allow them to have it. Mm. Um, but also keep walking um, so that they don't just stop, that they keep walking as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Because, yeah, there's a difference between walking with someone and being entangled with them. Ugh, and, yeah. like, I feel like you had to dance around so much because mm-hmm. knowing the difference between entanglement mm-hmm. and support is really difficult. It's, it's really so hard to see where one ends and the other begins. Um, and... Honestly, for those of you who are our mentors and trying to help other people or even just friends with others, like that's a life skill that only gets learned if you practice, right? So if you either, if you avoid helping, if you avoid being in those relationships, if you avoid having a supporting role, you'll never learn how to do it properly. And there's going to be missteps where you take on too much and other times where you were way too far away. Um, But it's not until you actually get in the game that you're going to be able to figure out how to do it. Yeah, you're going to mess up, but going yeah yep something else i wanted to add was um for those of us who are in like mentorship situations or discipleship if you're in the christian school we call it that um know that you are not a therapist um you are not a professional there are professionals out there so again like like we were saying earlier um know your resources um i know lots of very good therapists so um Dr. Nate. Yes. Um, so get a professional in there if needed, but remember that you are not a therapist, no matter how much therapy you've had. Um, and um, it's really easy to kind of take that role on, and um, that's sticky. So know your know your role. It's good guidance. Yep. Yeah. So um, may you guys be a positive impact um, in the people in your lives. Um, and be the type of people who can walk beside those who are struggling um, and hopefully help others find ways to emotionally process and grow in their skill um, to live full, shalom-filled lives. Peace.